Hello, my name is Dave Lewis, and I am the host of Cinemillennials, a podcast where myself and another millennial watch a classic film that we haven't seen before, ranging from the early 1900s to the late 1960s, and discuss its significance and relevance in our world today. On today's episode, I talked with actor Darren Stull, who picked 1928's The Man Who Laughs. You know, when we were all kids and some of us, including myself, dressed up as what we were told were the classic Halloween costumes? You know, like the mummy, Frankenstein's monster, Dracula? Well, our main character, Gwynplaine, should be held among them, as the man who laughs built the aesthetic foundation and stage upon which the Universal Picture Horror film series, its monsters, and the later horror genre as a whole, starred. Directed by German expressionist Paul Lenny and starring horror actor progenitor Conrad Veidt, alongside the very first scream queen herself, Mary Philbin, the man who laughs follows Gwynplaine, a man who is horribly disfigured as a child, and is sentenced to live his life with a permanent smile, due to his father's failed rebellion. His life is both cursed and blessed in childhood, as he saves a baby girl named Dea, who is blind. And both are then rescued by a kindly philosopher, Ursus. They grow older, fall in love, and live happy lives, despite the crowds that cruelly mock Gwynplaine. Until someone unveils a secret past. So sit back, relax, and watch the smile that inspired one of film's greatest villains, the Joker. Welcome to the show, Darren. What year were you born? What was your first film you saw in theaters? And what are your favorite films at the moment? Well, I was born in 1993. My first movie that I can remember seeing was Batman and Robin uh, <laughs> with Joel Schumacher and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And great movie to start out with. <laughs> yeah, great one to start out with. As a kid, it was great. Now, oh, not yeah. so much. <laughs> my favorite, my movies that I'm really liking right now, I want to say, I don't know if this even counts, but like Hamilton on Disney Plus, I think I've like <laughs> consumed like 20 times. I know that's like a play. Wow um i loved that i love i feel like i don't have any current favorite movies i feel like i'm always going back to like star wars like mm-hmm. an old batman film um i tend to kind of like action and adventure and and things like that so i don't know if there's anything recent that has stood out to me um maybe as we talk i'll think of it and we'll uh i'll blurt it out <laughs> Right, that's fine. I mean, it's funny that you keep mentioning Batman. Before we get into questions about the film, yeah, did our main character remind you of someone within our zeitgeist? Yes, he did. Yes, he okay. did. <laughs> and I think who, pray tell? Oh, the Joker. <laughs> hey, yes, yep. dude. I think when you asked me to do this and you sent me the list of movies to pick from. The man who laughs like kind of stood out to me. And I think if I look at the text, I was like something about it. I was like, I heard of this before, but I never watched it. And I honest to goodness did not realize that this would ultimately be what the Joker was based off of. So watching it was very, very cool. Um, And there are just so many things about this movie that I really like. So tons of we could go so many directions on like, oh, yeah, things that I picked up on. 
This this movie is by far my favorite silent film, if not one of my favorite silent films. Yeah. It just so much about it. It just it's it's a brilliant film. But yeah, Bob Kane and I can't remember. You might know uh, the other creator of Batman saw this film, loved this look, and they when you look at the very first comic, it's basically directly lifted Conrad Veidt's face. It's amazing, like how much and and the staying power of this film and this is where i heard about the man who laughs first i saw that i randomly i think it was on twitter or something where someone posted a trailer so last year a trailer went out around the world like by Flickr alley and they do a lot of like classic restorations and i saw this trailer and i was blown away when i was a kid I love these Universal Pictures monster horror series monsters. Like I said in the intro, I am a big fan of the mummy. I dressed up as a mummy as a kid, as a kid, and I dressed up as Frankenstein as a kid too. So these movies were later inspired, and they directly used a lot of elements, especially the scenery from The Man Who Laughs. It's the same exact uh, designer, set designer, as The Man Who Laughs, and it's basically this massively influential film within our zeitgeist and within Hollywood history, but not many people know about it or not many people have seen it. It's only very, uh, it's only talked about in small circles, like small film circles. And I was just lucky enough to see it, you know, pop up on my Twitter feed, which is like one of the things that's like really beautiful about film Twitter right now. I would have never seen that unless I like went out and pushed myself to see new movies to see older movies to see something that's off the beaten path no yeah i mean i feel like for me i i feel like a really terrible batman fan because i used to (laughs) really pride myself on like how much i knew about batman like as a kid it was uh like i said it was the first movie i ever watched um i i believe and i used to have this like fact straight i believe i had about 500 action figures batman all the villains wow. i had like three of the bat caves like every batmobile vehicle every bat plane and i was really surprised that like i never knew about this film and like how even just being an actor like how influential that was and and connor's performance as Plain. i mean I, w- I was very surprised that i my passion for batman did not lead me to find the the re- really the prototype of this character who is an icon and i mean everything he's lasted the joker is like really just an iconic character that really is timeless and batman's wife are going to be 100 years old soon no uh, it's not crazy it's crazy <laughs> but man I'm, I'm really grateful that i just something popped up and i watched it and um so many good things i mean i can't I really, it's it's hard. There's so many like things I want to like right. talk about, but it, man, it was a really great film. You might have had a bat plane as a kid, but you didn't have a Gwyn plane. <laughs> Not have a Gwyn plane. <laughs> I, was, I was so awful. That? That, was, that was awful. <laughs> I'll put I, I like it, Dave. I like it. <laughs> Keep it in the what ins- What inspired you to pick this film? Well, looking at the list, I truly, I, the day that we were talking about this, I, I was running, I was on a run. So I really was looking at it while you sent me, I was running around campus at Auburn university. I was visiting my family. Um, 
and I think I'm really drawn to laughter. And I went in blind. I did not know a thing. I honestly had no and nothing <laughs> going into it. That's great yeah. though, because I I knew it was maybe about a clown or maybe about you know something. And as a kid, I always loved like I was obsessed with the Phantom of the Opera. And I was like, all right, maybe this is kind of like a this this looks like a interesting take on it. Like so much so I was so obsessed with it was that I seen it. I went to see it twice on Broadway and uh, I dressed up as the Phantom one time when I went there. I dressed up as the Phantom uh, in middle school, got relentlessly made fun of it, made fun of for it. But um, yeah, I just always like this whole kind of idea of the outcast trying to um find his love or find you know i i related to that to a certain degree but i think with me the man who laughs i was just so enthralled because something that was like right up my alley when i first started watching this i was like oh there's a lot of history here there's a lot of intrigue there's a lot of heart within this as well there's a lot of passion and joy as well as the melancholy of it all and the german expressionist type of doom and gloom around them this movie I, I have a theory with films is that the greats all have a few things in common, and that is they all have to have some some kind of comedy element to it, as well as you know focusing on the serious and the dramedy, uh, the drama of it all, not the dramedy of it all. But you know it it, it is exactly what life is like. Yes, I mean this film exactly isn't exactly what life is like to us now. Um, but we can still sympathize with Gwynplaine and Dea's stories and yeah. what the director and what Victor Hugo, who wrote it, who also wrote Les Miserables and uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which actually in 1923 uh, really inspired these types of films to be invested in and to be released in the big screen. And I think a lot of it's just basically down to someone that has this great heart but they are disfigured in some way and people see the outside negativity but don't see the inside positivity i can't agree enough i i think uh you touched on um how timeless that sort of underdog story and and how like it's still relatable today even though that film so old 1928 right yeah Um, yeah yeah like i i think people are just now it's something and i guess we'll touch on it more later but i felt there are things that themes in the movie thematically that we we still deal with today and like maybe there are a lot of very traditional Mm -hmm. tropes that are very old-fashioned in the movie but still today like people want to be seen and be heard and feel loved and maybe you don't like a a body part on you or you have an insecurity about something and i think people really crave wanting to be loved for who they are and i think that's something that is timeless and i think you kind of like think about these people and think they lived in a completely different world because it was like you know so long ago but I, i mean these i felt like wow like you it's nothing's changed everything's changed and nothing's changed all at the same time so Definitely, definitely agree with that aspect of it. I've seen The Man Who Laughs described as a horror movie, a thriller movie. And when you look at the promotional items for it and the the restored versions of these films, a lot of it 
definitely trends more towards being a horror film. And that's not what you see in this film. I mean, even Roger Ebert says, the man who laughs is a melodrama at times, even a swashbuckler, but so steeped in expressionist gloom that it plays like a horror film. What could you classify this film as? Yeah, so I think when I watched it and and I had this exact same thought, I was like, what is this? I was kind of like, what am I watching? And on the outset, it's a very much a horror film. But as you watch the movie, you realize I felt like this is a romance. I was looking up some of the players in the movie and uh, Googling the cast. And I guess Google has it as a horror slash romance film. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't I would I I felt it was more of a love story than mm-hmm. a a horror film. But there are definitely some horror probably to the people back then too they were like this is scary for sure (laughs) for sure i mean it's born out of the german expressionist movement and we've talked a little bit about that before in the podcast with m and i i really really like german expressionism because the whole idea of it is having the turmoil or the psychological ideas that you have in your head like the negative parts of our society come out physically into this doom and gloom type of dark gothic setting and i thought that was like i mean a lot of people assume you know medieval or renaissance set movies and you know places in general are all these doom and gloom places but it's almost like how in the movie it's not actually like that it's more of you know colorful it's joyous there's full of love and heart in this movie and like you're saying, like, I completely agree that it is. And I agree with Roger Ebert, who says it's like a swashbuckler with expressionism and, you know, romance all put together. I read something where they were saying, so it was The Hunchback, The Phantom of the Opera, and then this film. Oh, it's like kind of like a combination of all of these Beauty and the Beast type of things. And I think this film goes past that because Gwynplaine is not a monster. He really isn't. He might look like he is, but he's not. I mean, from the get-go, when you meet when you meet Gwynplaine as a child from the first time, for the first time, you see how vulnerable and how compassionate he is, especially when he sees Dea's mother. And when he's surrounded by this doom and gloom where there's men hanging by gibbets all over the place around his surroundings, it's snowing. He sees a dead woman and holding her baby, like her eyes open and everything. There's a lot about this film that wouldn't be put on film today in certain yeah. situations um, because this is the pre-Hayes Code era. But I think with those things in that, it makes it more grounded and it makes it so much more um, realistic where you see these people and they're, they're in these terrible situations. And especially when playing like he has one of the worst things that he had no control over. He was horribly disfigured by these um people because of his father's rebellion his he didn't have a choice in this and he throughout the film constantly sees the lighter side of people except for when he's mocked and laughed at because although he is an actor he doesn't want to be a clown it really showed gwen plain like as a kid like you're saying that vulnerability and I think children know 
how to love inherently. And I think people are inherently good. And I think life goes on. And, you know, we have these like circumstances that scar us on the inside or, or physically things happen to you and it makes you cold and it scars you a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought this movie was such a beautiful expression of how when playing, it was like the physically, like his mouth was carved open into a smile. Mm -hmm. And you can take that and like, look at, you know, humanity and, and how people deal with that on like a personal level and how he chose to be loving and, and save, you know, that child who ultimately, you know, become his lover. And mm-hmm. I think it really just to so many things today that are really like prevalent and things, things about us that, you know, maybe we don't want to face. Uh, but I think we could all relate to Gwynplaine for sure. If we like look down deep within ourselves, there's something that is kind of like out there, but misunderstood. And maybe he's searching for love too, just like wanting love and acceptance from people. And I mean, who doesn't want that? Um, But yeah, I think he, uh, he's not a monster. He is a regular guy, had really bad, a bad circumstance happened to him and a bad situation. And he kind of ended up in this life. I feel like due to, that's what I gathered due to his smile. A lot of villains that we see right now, including the Joker, they have these awful, traumatizing things happen in their childhood. And you were touching on this before, too, is that but with Gwynplaine, he doesn't see those things as hurdles that basically have have taken him away from this life that he would have loved. And, you know, this this whole thing that he would have, you know, extremely enjoyed. But he sees it as, okay, it happened. And yes, it's a negative thing, but I want to make this into a positive thing. I want to make this into someone loving me one day, someone like me loving someone else, because those people didn't love me that did that. So I want to treat those that might not love me with more love, despite them mocking me because of my deformity or because of my disfiguration. I love that. I I and don't we need more people like that in the world right now? I just I love that. Like you take you take those hurdles and and you choose to be positive and you carry on and you keep going and I think those are people that we really admire in the world and um yeah, people that just like you you love a comeback story and Gwynplaine is like quintessential. I don't know if he we could we could find this out. We don't know. Um, was he maybe the first um, comeback story in a movie? I mean, he. I mean, this seems like a very. I. I don't know where just you have all these odds stacked against you, and and he chooses to try to do something good with his life, and still chasing his dreams and being a performer, and and. Um, just going after it, you know, he just might of, be. Yeah, I think he might be. He might be he, our first comeback kid. He, yeah. he might he might just be. And I think it, it's I mean, you get all of these things. You get all these emotions and these feelings from Conrad's performance. Yeah, he is. I mean, he is 
an amazing actor. Before this film, he was the progenitor of the horror picture. He was basically the very first major horror thriller called uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Calieri, which is this horror film where it's a story of uh, a psychopath that wakes up in the middle of the night and has to kill. And he plays the killer. And Paul Lenny picked him up because of his performance in that film. And I think that he has that darker side, but he also has this extreme vulnerability. And he's able to use his eyes as the whole performance. He has almost no movement of his mouth because of hooks and prosthetic uh, materials that he had in his mouth in order to get that effect of him smiling all the time. It was an extremely painful process, like a lot of those prosthetics were at the time. But you definitely can tell when he's covering his mouth with his hands, as I am now, and you just see the pain and the anguish and everything burst out into his eyes, sometimes not even with tears in his eyes. And to have that control in order to show that is brilliantly amazing oh yeah his acting really just really took me i, I uh, uh obviously in the the art of acting is changed a lot and it's mm-hmm. a lot more you know grounded in subtlety and reality and it, it is in the eyes now and it's definitely some people would say acting has maybe changed for not the best in terms of we don't emote as much, but I think, you know, it used to be plays. It used to be you had to be very big right. to play to the back of the house. And you watch a movie now and it's like you barely see you. You really just want to see it in the eyes, because if your eyes say it, um, you know, then it will it will come across. But I think that Gwen Plain and Conrad rather did such an amazing job um, in those close-up shots of his eyes where he's like hiding his mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, you're seeing that pain and you're kind of very, very great actor. I mean, like you can see like the uncontrollable laughter. So it was yes. like laughing, but crying, but very mm-hmm. pained. And maybe those prosthetics probably hurt him on the day. Maybe he did not <laughs> like wearing them. Um, and I, you know, I wish he was alive. We could ask him, but uh <laughs> I bet it was pretty grueling. I know the studio system back then also probably long hours. And some of those tears are probably rooted in reality. But Mm -hmm. um, I I really love the acting style. And and this is just kind of an aside. Like uh, Dea, I really noticed with her hands. She was very Mm -hmm. wispy and willowy. And her acting like with her hands urethral yeah with her hands like very soft and elegant and you know had to portray that she was blind but very the most elegant blind person yeah she's <laughs> very angelic very angelic very beautiful her performance was um i i thought her physicality was great and what's even more amazing is back then films were new so there wasn't like you couldn't go study this stuff like you know you can kind of now if you want to act like somebody or or project as Mm -hmm. being ethereal or being soft or being elegant we have movies movies and movies and movies to look at but back then there was not so much of that like you really had to create that and convey that on screen and and you just 
probably didn't know how it was going to look until you did it, which which is um, I, I have to really kind of give them props for that because they're kind of mm-hmm. building the plane and flying it at that right. point. Back then. So um, beautiful acting as an actor yourself. What were some things that you took away from this film that you could use in your arsenal for the future? Ooh, OK, I believe that you can convey emotion and physicality and sometimes oftentimes i don't really think to do that i'm very um i i i do it with my face that's something that i picked up on was like i i notice really good physicality with actors that i really enjoy and that's something that stood out also conrad again back to just the intensity and the being able to display heartbreak uncontrollable laughter, guilt, embarrassment, joy, joy, being multifaceted um, in your acting and maybe not just trying to play one emotion at a time. But he really, in some of those scenes, he really did quite a bit. Like you can really Mm -hmm. feel so many things and you could probably, I might see something that you don't see or, you know, you're, I, I would say like he kind of moved like a bat kind of mm-hmm. like <laughs> shoulders hunched and like like he's ready to pounce sort of but like very like timid he looked kind of like a scared bass so what did you think yeah I thought um as an act now um so, but uh <laughs> as someone that's done high school and like been in an extra in one show um but I I I mean f- as people can tell from the different things that I've done on YouTube and here, and I mean, clearly, clearly this podcast, I've always had like a passion for film and acting. And I always watched classic movies as a kid. And it's really interesting, interesting to see. And you kind of confirmed what I thought about acting today is a lot of it's based on the subtlety. And when you look at films, silent films, people often describe them as melodramatic without the context of how the cameras worked back then, how makeup worked back then, and people will say, oh, it's heavily caked on. It's there for a reason. It's there for you to still understand those subtleties when they make those choices to be subtle, as well as accentuating the eyes and the mouth and like what is happening and how to make sure you know the difference between who's an evil character versus who's a good character because you don't have, you know, the white hats, black hats, like how you do in Westerns later on in the fifties and sixties. I think it's really like, I mean, I keep talking about his vulnerability and his, like, it was great that you mentioned physicality. And I think it's amazing that Mary Philbin who plays Dea is brilliant in this. She gets a lot of uh, talking points about her performance in fan of the opera and is really known for that film, but I think she has a much better performance in this film. And she only really has a couple films after this and then just becomes a recluse. Her last public appearance was for the opening of The Phantom of the Opera in the 1990s, the the Broadway show in L.A., and uh, that was the last time she was the, the first the first Christine so the last Christine. Oh, that's and beautiful. It was like a whole full circle. I just found out about that today, and it's really interesting to see why she didn't do anything more. Like that's such an interesting story. Why she didn't want to continue. I think it's 
it's really interesting because there's a lot of actors and actresses like that from the silent era that just didn't make it over to the talkies, didn't make it over to color film. I think it really is a masterpiece. It's yeah. definitely one of the unsung films, unsung masterpieces throughout cinema, and I think it deserves a better shake. I think a lot more people should watch this film because it has every cornerstone and keystone of a great film. Uh, it is laughter, even though it's a lot of times it is very dark and mysterious type of comedy uh, and a lot of, you know, very gothic elements to it as well. But again, there's so much heart in this movie and I dare anyone not to feel any empathy or any feelings towards Gwynplaine and his situation. Absolutely. I did not know about um, Mary and her kind of becoming a recluse. And I think that's really interesting. You do kind of have some actors that kind of like get their big break and they make their legacy and they kind of do what they want to do. And, and they realize that dream. And sometimes they're just kind of finished. I think um, the life of an actor and uh, we don't know all that she probably went through to even just get those, her movies that she did make. Mm-hmm. But it can be a struggle. And, you know, by the time you get there and you, you get a chance to kind of do what you want to do, sometimes you feel like, all right, I've done it. I've realized this dream. And and sometimes that's it. I I really just could not get over their, their performances and I actually did not know that she played Christine in Phantom. Mm-hmm. So that that um, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's it's amazing like how these stories keep being retold. And recently there was a quote unquote remake or an adaptation of The Man Who Laughs for a French audience. Um, but do you think that this film could be adapted to today's world in that like it would still be a period piece, but yeah. could you think do you think that you could see it on the big screen today? You know what? I think I think if the right director did it and we modernized it but kept the heart of it and and honestly it would have to be um I almost wanted to say like well we do have kind of a modern version I think we'd call it the Joker <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> it's a little yeah. I mean very very different but a lot of the same sort of like heartbreak and oh, he's more true. dealing with internal scars not physical um wanting to be loved wanting to be a performer i I think Mm -hmm. we in some ways that movie is sort of a remake um but i i think we could do it today i think um it might be a movie that people would want to see i think we're i think as an audience the united states we really want to see stories about authenticity and being genuine and and appreciating each other for you know, our, our positive qualities and, and mm-hmm. just going deeper than surface level. I think that's, I think that's pretty important. And I think that, uh, it's something we, we don't see a lot of today. Um, on another hand, I don't, it's such a beautiful film. I don't know if I would want, I don't know how a sequel would compare, you know, or, right. or a remake. I don't know how it would do That's a good thing. I don't even want like a remake. I think this film could be um, now with what's happening in our society and what's happening in our culture. A lot of it is like trying to understand what used to be called the other, you know, the people that people didn't understand in society. And I think 
this film can bring a lot of people different perspective to see oh okay like I, I might have not liked this person before because of what they believe or what have you but you know maybe there's something behind them behind that thing that i think is ugly that i don't really understand and i should take some time to learn why i think it's ugly or why i think i'm wrong in that situation and if i am wrong i should learn to know why i am wrong and learn to love that other person on the other side and you know treat that person as i would want to be treated yeah this film is super important now i mean i think if you did do a re like a rehash of it i would still put it in that period because i think i think it's still relevant to today obviously like i'm saying but i think you need to have it a little grounded in that period piece as well and with the way that period pieces are going i'm a massive fan of period pieces and with things like the favorite being one of uh being a really popularized and uh critically loved film i think you could totally do something like this today and i mean it would be appealing to horror film genre like junkies it would be you know really applicable to what is happening today and i think it's interesting that you say um it's basically the joker i myself uh like i said before i'm not a horror fan i'm not like a big thriller a lot of this thriller guy this kind of stuff gets in my head unless it's like hitchcock um (laughs) so i actually left the theater i think i told you this like when i first saw it and i was just so freaked out but i i can definitely tell by reading it and i'm definitely gonna watch it eventually uh with the lights on in the morning um (laughs) Yes, I uh, can definitely see where that's coming from. And it's it's kind of like you're right. It it is very similar to what the man who laughs is really about. And it's about the other and, you know, understanding the other. But it's with the within the Joker's perspective. It's with mental health. I think you definitely, definitely need to watch it in the morning with the lights on. <laughs> that's for sure. It's such a good <laughs> film. And I really think you'll actually appreciate that. Um, Having watched this movie, um, uh, this is a really random aside that I picked out. There's a an extra mm-hmm. in the Man Who Laughs who is a part of like the clown. Like he's the clown. He you can definitely see a, a spotlight is on him, and he's always in the center. He's got the the Joaquin Phoenix makeup is exactly mm-hmm. the same. Do you see the influence this film has on filmmaking today? Oh, definitely, definitely. I I see in the <clears throat> uh, the set pieces really um, in the lighting design of how it'll be dark on half of the it just the way that they angle the lighting to make it very shadowy. Um, I I really see yeah, just a lot of like film technique. I think mm-hmm. obviously has carried over. Um, you know, good film technique, I don't believe, has really changed a lot in the history of cinema. I think mm-hmm. film technique, good film technique is good film technique, and it'll always be. Um, however, um, I feel like a lot of the mob scenes, I'm like, yep, you kind of see that today. I think um, I noticed a really weird thing with like the the commoner, like the, t- the townspeople running right. out after his like carriage or whatever i'm like you see that so much like children just running after today it'll be just like in a movie it'll be like 
kids chasing after uh, maybe a car or maybe a, a politician or someone's right. in it or you see kind that kind of thing uh um, running off after uh gandalf for uh fireworks yeah absolutely <laughs> so yeah you definitely you definitely see some of that um there are two specific things that i think has carried over if you'll allow me to be a dork for a second <laughs> hey i mean we're yeah. doing a podcast about classic movies everyone's allowed yeah, to be a dork. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> so okay so I picked up on this. Did you see in the beginning where I don't know who it was, but um, a male character in the movie in the beginning, I think um, he he puts his fingers in his mouth and like pulls it to make a smile. Barco I was like, yeah. Yes, Heath Ledger did Jester. that. Yeah. Kind of opens his mouth like that. Um, also in the Heath Ledger Joker version, it's a carving um with a knife Mm -hmm. you know to make the smile so the mouth is being carved open yeah like the Um, comfort chicos did to go in plane yeah yeah so that is a direct reference um you see and and actually not every iteration of the joker uses that that um right i don't believe the knife the story um or the yeah the surgically opening the mouth i don't believe that has been used except for in the keith ledger version i do uh, there's something else at the end of the movie where um quinplane is kind of hanging off of the ledge if you watch the 1989 tim burton batman movie um yeah jack nicholson's joker is hanging off at the end and they're on the same thing it's they're on a tower and he draw he loses one hand and there's a shot in uh the man who laughs where it kind of like mm-hmm. shows like it's a really funny way of like how it sh- kind of shows like the camera like dropping towards the crowd and jack nicholson's version of the joker kind of meets his end he falls off of and if you haven't seen I... the batman movie in 30 years i'm sorry i spoiled it but you have 30 <laughs> years so <laughs> i vaguely remember that watching on tv as a kid well one of the things that i was saying what i was thinking about with that shot was that is a zali zooming in and physically moving the camera in and out um yeah and that's like i mean hitchcock is known for that within vertigo and rear window I mean, it's amazing that you're making all these connections to Batman. And even now there is a Batman comic that is the man who laughs. This is just something like we didn't really uh, story-wise like touch on. I really, a lot of the story, one of the subplots was about um, Gwynplaine having an opportunity to cheat on, I guess, his girlfriend, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is what I, I, I gathered from it. Um, and there were some things that I didn't quite understand about the movie. I think um, what was interesting is, and you might be able to elaborate on this too, They, I, I think because the movies were silent, they had to tell a lot of the story with the title cards, right. as well as tell a lot of the story with um, letters in films. Mm-hmm. So I feel like they maybe used the... Um, the plot device of opening a letter and showing you a letter to to move the story forward so mm-hmm. i i noticed that as well um that was an interesting piece but how what a timeless kind of uh again the movie's just very timeless like we deal with that kind of thing today you know right and uh, I think the version I sent you, which is the version that I originally watched before purchasing like a 4K version of it, 
you saw the scene when Barcafedro, who is the jester and later becomes elevated to a courtier, he he is talking to that like really long guy. You know what I'm talking about? The, the really yeah. long faced peasant who is one of my favorite background characters like ever. He's so funny in the way he walks and looks and reacts to things. Um, he, you, you saw the, the, the nudity part, right? Where she's in the bath, the Duchess. I did. Okay. I did. Okay. And I was going to like, okay. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so, and, and, and there, there's a lot of, actual really suggestive and sensual parts in this film especially when you're talking about the infidelity uh chance that uh Gwynplaine could have had and that is because this is before the Hayes code so the Hayes yeah. code was a whole type uh, was a situation where a lot of groups thought that films were way too out of control and that became a issue later on. But before that, so like in the early 20s, there was a lot of nudity back then. And then the Hayes Code came along, so it was more censored. And writers actually, which I think to a certain degree where later films are alluding to situations and sexual acts and different things like this, I think that actually kind of strengthened writing in film later on due to that you know, restriction with uh, the Hayes Code. And and even it says, like, about Gwynplaine, like, he just wants this whole idea, like, he even says in the movie, I, this shows me that a woman could love me that can actually see me, and I don't care that she wants to sleep with me, I want to be with Dea anyway. Like, that's yeah. the first thing that comes to his mind, he's just so good and pure, he's like, oh, yeah. she likes me, and then the whole thing falls apart, and due yeah. to different uh, really great subplot that I really like. The whole uh, Jacobite revolution that it's very loosely based off of. Outlander fans, you're going to like this one too. When you're talking about the title cards and lettering, yeah. it is a plot device to move it forward. But also, during the 20s and even a little bit before, it depended on the theater as well as um, how the theater that you went to operated. So during that whole time, so I think, I don't know if your, if the version you watched and the version I watched had the same exact music, because yeah. at that time, what happened was you'd go to the movie, movie house, uh, you'd go to the theater, they'd show the picture. If there was no music that the director attached to the film, um, they would play whatever they felt was appropriate, as okay. well as uh, they would have a narrator in the crowd basically reading off what the letter said or what uh, a character said. Okay. So that's why they have those intercut uh, titles. And, you know, because I noticed that too, because most of the time it's just one thing. It's like, I mean, even in later films, it's one piece of paper and like you have the whole thing. But this kind of went into the little details of it over and over, which I thought was interesting. That the, It was an interesting choice to just make sure these points hit home for the audience. Exactly. And I, I think I know exactly what you're talking about. I kind of felt like I was watching or seeing the same sentence like over and over and over again. And I kind of thought I was crazy. I'm like, did I watch this already? Like, right. <laughs> yeah. So that that confirms that aspect of it for me. But uh, man, I really this this is really just kind of like opened my eyes. Like, I think I want to watch some more good classic film and there's so many good stories that like i don't know about i feel like i've 
you just kind of know what you're born in, which is like 90s to current right. day. And but you can go back and go back and go back. Yeah. And I think we uh, don't go back. Like there's so much brand new, you know, content for us to consume. And it was made in the 20s, 30s and 40s. I mean, right. we just don't think to to go back there. So I really thank you for like kind of getting me to watch a good movie, you know, and I'm going to yeah, keep it going. Of course. Great. I mean, that's what this whole podcast is about, really. I, as a kid, I watched a lot of classic movies for my grandparents and my parents. Wizard of Oz was one of my first movies that I've ever seen. And even after that, I would go after movies. Like in high school, I really got into classic films and I got my first Criterion Collection movies, which was Laurence Olivier's Henry V and Bergman's uh, The Seventh Seal. And those are still two one of my favorite films, a uh, couple of my favorite films. And I really wanted to make this podcast so people that I knew in the past or people I know now, uh, oh, f- classic films are boring. They're not interesting. There's not enough action. But there is, isn't there? there like, there is, is so there much, is. especially yeah. in this film, too. And I think we are missing a lot of cultural touchstones that we would understand later on and really comprehend more from these classic films. Darren, now that you've watched The Man Who Laughs and you want to watch more classic films, why do you think millennials and the younger generations should watch The Man Who Laughs? I think younger generations should watch The Man Who Laughs because... Uh, if you are a superhero fan, you're going to get something from it. If you are a fan of horror films uh, like I am, you're going to get something from it. I think you'll also get a really timeless um, sort of love story from it. I also think that there's it's just so relatable. And I, and I think we've really just kind of been saying that for the last you know hour we've been talking. Like, <laughs> it's such a relatable, like... Like this, this guy could have lived today and Mm -hmm. grandparents or older people or people that are dead or historical people kind of live like these different lives or maybe they don't feel like they were real. But you watch these movies and you sort of get um, an aspect of really how things haven't changed all that much. They Mm -hmm. felt the same things and movies are what we have left historically of 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 what people went through at the time and what was important important enough for them to make a movie about. And you're mm-hmm. going to have to read and pay attention, but it's by because I sort of, like you said, I drew relation to other movies and things that I watch nowadays. I'm like, oh, this is kind of like that, or this is like this. And it it all ties together. Like you you hear a lot of people say movies there's nothing new under the sun. It's just the same thing over and over again. Right. You can go back and go back and a movie like this is like, this was the first iteration of what you would see today, like the Joker or what have you. Um, so these movies are so important to watch. I think we've got to give them a lot more respect than they deserve. I really hope you enjoyed today's discussion I had with Darren about one of the greatest silent films ever made. The Man Who Laughs. I really enjoyed our discussion and want to say thank you to him for bringing his acting experience and insight to the show. If you enjoyed this episode of Cinemillennials and want to watch the film we discussed, please check out my website, dlumoviereview.com, 
for more episodes of the podcast, film reviews, analyses, and where to purchase the film we discussed today. Please don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating as it helps more people find the podcast. Thank you.